Exodus 32, beginning in verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses one through 14. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it for us, even that we might have it this morning. It's been read in a language we can understand, but we know that we need more than physical hearing and understanding. We need spiritual ears, or we need spiritual hearts. Would you do that? Would you take this word and by the power of your spirit, would you work righteousness in our hearts? God, thank you for your work. Thank you that we have Jesus and that we have mercy. May your people know of his mercy this day. Help me, your servant. Oh God, protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. You are our salvation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
throughout America's history, it's been common for prisoners, those who are in prison, prisoners to help in the expansion and the building of prison facilities. Maybe you knew that. Maybe you didn't know that's been common to have prisoners help in the building of prison facilities. Now, you probably catch the irony, right? Because the irony there is pretty thick. Uh, Every brick that is laid makes the prisoner even more imprisoned, right? And every nail that is hammered makes their escape even more impossible. But beyond the irony, I would say, lies a very instructive illustration an illustration for the presence and the pervasiveness of something common to every single human being that has ever lived. And what is that? Sin. Sin. Okay, sin. Sin is just the same. We're, we're all sinners. And every sin we commit adds to sinfulness. And then the sins that we commit often lead us to commit even more sins on top of them. Sin upon sin upon sin, brick upon brick upon brick. Maybe we'll say it this way, shame upon guilt upon condemnation. Like those prisoners, we're often quite engaged in the building of our own prisons. Now, I know that it's not popular to talk much about sin these days. It's not popular. But I would tell you this, that when our very souls are at stake, we should not be all that interested in finding a seat at the table where all the popular kids sit. When our souls are at stake, we should be really concerned about truth. We should take a cue from our brothers and sisters of generations past. When they talked about sin, they didn't whisper it. They talked about it. I like the titles of some of the books that they've used. Sin, the greatest evil. That's a title. The mischief of sin. Or how about Jeremiah Burroughs' very famous volume on sin? It's actually my favorite title. I titled the sermon the same thing today. The Exceeding Sinfulness of Sin. It's like, I wonder what this book is about. Oh, I get it. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. We should follow their lead and face up to that which the Bible leads us to face. Our great sinfulness and God's provision of a great savior. Both are present in Exodus 32. Both are there. One is clear while the other is a shadow Sin might radiate from the page, but the dawning rays of salvation break through over the horizon. Both sin and salvation are present in Exodus 32. And I'll tell you this, we have to see both. We must see both if we're to understand either one. Both are present, and it's my aim to show you both today. So doing, I'll follow the example given to us by Paul, In 1 Corinthians 10, from which I read, he reminded us that Exodus 32 and actually all of the Old Testament was written for our instruction. It was written for us so that we, he says, you heard it read, we would not fall into the same sinful idolatry that Israel did so that we might flee from sin and run into the arms of a faithful God, to run into the arms of a savior who provides his very self 
his very self as the way of escape from sin. So let's begin then our study of Exodus 32 by considering first how sin rises up. I know many of you like to take notes, so if you're taking notes, this is our first of three points this morning. Sin rises up. So we know from context, and we've been in Exodus for quite a while, uh, we know that Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's up at the top of Mount Sinai, and he's meeting with the Lord. Where he's been receiving, you might remember, the, the book of the covenant. He's also been receiving all the instructions about the tabernacle and about the priests. 2418, if you were to go back and look, and you can, it tells us that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And if you think about it, that's a long time, right? 40 days and 40 nights is quite a long time. But don't forget the context here. Let's think this through. Uh, the people are where? The people are encamped, right? At the base of the mountain. They're right there. They can see that all that cloud. They, they heard the thunder and the lightning, right? They heard God's voice give the 10 commandments. They saw all of this. They know that Moses is up there. Don't forget as well that just a few chapters ago, God confirmed his covenant with his people and 70 of their elders went up halfway to the mountain, right? They couldn't go all the way to the top. It's like the tabernacle. They went up there and they had a, a feast together. Now let's add to this even more context. What's happened to these people? They were slaves in Egypt, right? God brought the plagues. He miraculously and triumphantly delivered them. He brought them across dry land there. The Red Sea, he saved them. He's even provided them manna. He's given them all that they need. They're there. Imagine that you're them. All that you've seen, all that has happened, all that you've witnessed, you'd be like, wow. You'd be standing in awe, waiting with great and eager anticipation for Moses to come down, right? Because he's got to come down with something really wonderful. Can you picture it? Then just stand there going, oh man, I can't wait till he gets back. That's what we'd hope for, right? But nope. Nope, not even close. Instead, they're impatient. I can say they're impatient because of how they speak about them in verse one. It's really clear in the Hebrew, not so much here, but I'll, I'll open up for you. When they say this Moses, this Moses, that's contempt. That bum. We don't even know where he went. What do you mean you don't know where he went? This Moses, he's taking too long. They're restless. They're impatient. None of us struggle with that, right? I mean, I can't even sit in a drive through line without getting impatient. My family's back there, amen. They're restless. So look what they do. Hey, Aaron. Make gods for us who will go before us. Right, everybody wants to yell, what? Are you kidding me? What? Hey, Aaron, make gods for us. I mean, they're running headlong in to violating the first commandment, are they not? You shall have no other gods before me. And they're like, we're tired of staying around waiting. Let's run right into sin and breaking the first commandment. 
And that's shocking. It's shocking. And I think even more shockingly, Aaron agrees. Aaron, who's kind of been up on the mountain a little bit, right? He's like, okay. And you're like, what? What's happened? It's like invasion of the body snatchers or something, right? Like, who are these people? Who are they? So he takes their gold. And I want to point out to you again, verse four, the language is very clear and this is helpful. Notice what he does. It's very clear what he does. He takes the gold, right? He melts it down and he fashions for them. It says, quote, a golden calf with a graving tool. And you're like, why is that important? Well, Moses is gonna confront Aaron later. We didn't have time to read all of 32. We'll talk about it. Moses is gonna confront Aaron. He's gonna get right in his face. What did you do that for? Go to verse 21. Look how he responds. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Behold, fire, calves, right? What, what, what's he talking about? This calf just walked right out. It magically self-generated and appeared. What was I supposed to do? The first sermon I remember hearing on Exodus 32, the pastor just started weeping at this point. He's like, why would people do this? And you're like, yeah, Dan cries, he's gonna cry. Maybe I did all enough all week, okay? Sin is pervasive. It's blinding. Sin is blinding. Sin blinds us from reality and sends us on a downward spiral, right, of of more and more sin. I mean, you sin, you try to cover up, and that leads to more sins. I mean, Aaron has already broken the second commandment, right? So the first commandment's gone. The second commandment's gone because they fashioned this idol. And then he breaks the ninth commandment by lying. And a good study of 32 will show how all Ten Commandments are broken here. If that wasn't shocking enough, look what Aaron and the people do with this golden calf. Aaron built an altar before it. And he says the next day, he declares it to be a feast to the Lord. Not to the calf. Catch this, please. It's not a feast for the calf or for the gods that are going to bring us out. The calf is now standing in the place of Yahweh. And what do they do the next day? Verse 6, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They're worshiping this calf the way God has instructed them to worship. This calf is their Yahweh, their covenant Lord. And then I, that phrase, they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rose up to play is a euphemism. It speaks of sexual immorality, which is why Paul makes that link over in 1 Corinthians 10. Like, what are all the worst things they could have done? They did it. Right here. This calf. 
It's shocking, it's terrifying, and it's sad, right? Just take all that and roll it up into one bundle. How could these people who had witnessed and received so much turn their backs so quickly on God? 40 days. That's an easy question to ask, isn't it? How dare they? Who do they think they are? How can they let a little impatience rise up to such a great evil? That's what sin does. It invades and pervades, sometimes in the most subversive ways. In our fallen nature, sin can easily take a foothold. Sin's like like a weed. It can sprout up in one place, and you see it, and you're like, oh, there's a weed there. The next time you go out, where are all the weeds? They're everywhere, right? Infest the entire garden. That's why Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 10 to take heed lest we fall. This was written for your instruction. Take heed lest you fall. So please don't miss this. Sin is exceedingly sinful. And we must be on our guard. We have to be on our guard for temptation to sin comes from both without and within. Notice it rose from within them. And then it just poured over into the outside. So the proper response I would say to these verses is not how dare they, but how dare I? How dare I? How do I? How do you, who've witnessed and received so much from the Lord, how do I turn my back on him so quickly? How do we turn our backs on him so quickly? How can we let such a small thing rise up to such a great evil? We must see that sin rises up. Not just here, we see it in our lives, but we see it clearly. In Exodus 32, that sin rises up even within us. So we must also see that when sin does rise up, what happens? Judgment comes down. When sin rises up, judgment comes down. This is clearly what happens in Exodus 32, and it's that second of three points this morning. So if you're taking notes, our second point is judgment comes down. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Several things to notice here. Notice how God calls the people your people. (laughs) Those are your people, Moses. Go down to your people. They're Moses' people. The Lord is obviously angry. His nostrils are full of the rising smell of sin, right? The the false worship at the base of the mountain. The the people have forsaken the Lord who speaks and delivers. They've heard him speak. They've experienced his deliverance. And what do they do? They've chosen a golden calf who cannot speak and cannot deliver. Remember, these are the same people who've promised multiple times to do what? Everything you do, Lord. Lord. Everything you say, I'm sorry, everything you say, Lord, we will do. We'll do all of it. Yet these same people, notice they're called this people. 
something to pick up there in the language. This people in verse nine, this Moses, this people, God calls them stiff-necked, stiff-necked. First time it's used in the Old Testament, but it becomes a, a very common phrase that God uses to speak of his people, a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn and they're obstinate. The Lord's angry with them. So Moses comes down the mountain and with Moses comes judgment, right? This is kind of interesting. If you read along, Moses and Joshua are coming down the mountain and Joshua's like, oh, I hear noise. I, I hear this. I hear something going on. There must be battle. There must be something. And Moses is like, I hear singing, right? Moses is like, I hear worship because he had heard from the Lord what's happening. So Moses is like at his face set, right? He's coming down the mountain. He's coming like a parent who walks into the room. I've had enough. Okay. He's coming down. He's coming down the mountain. Look at verses 17 through 20. Excuse me. Let's, let's pick it up in verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and then he ground it to powder and he scattered it on the water and he made the people of Israel drink it. And you're like, whoa, whoa. Well, sin is serious. The people had broken God's covenant. Remember these tablets? God had written them himself with his hand. So what does he do? He takes them and he throws them. We kind of do that too, right? Like if we want to end a contract and we're angry, what, what, what might we do? Rip it up, right? Rip it to shreds. I'm done with this. Moses takes those tablets and he throws them. The people had broken God's covenant. God's relationship, they had broken that covenant relationship. Moses is filled with righteous indignation. All the promises of the people have been broken. And then he takes that idol and he grinds it up and he scatters it on the water and he makes the people drink it. This is important because those who are consumed by sin are gonna be made to consume the consequences of their sin. It's a drastic measure for sure, but it does illustrate well the principle that one reaps what he sows. If one sows unrighteousness and sin, then he will reap unrighteousness and sin. That is what he will be forced to harvest and to eat, and that's kind of what Moses is doing here. Later in verses 25 through 29, uh, we find Moses crying out for people, like, choose a side. Take sides, the side of righteousness or the side of sin. And then some of those who choose to continue in sin, we hear that they are put to death by the sword. Verse 28 says that it was 3,000 men, which means it was likely close to 10,000 people. This may seem harsh to our 21st century ears, but let us not forget what we hear in Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. We hear that throughout the Bible. And so here we have a vivid picture of those wages. Sin leads to death. Sin is not neutral. Sin is not a toy to be played with. Sin is destructive and sin has consequences. Sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. Judgment falls upon each and every sin. Notice even verse 35, often overlooked. The Lord sent a plague on the people. He sent a plague on them because they made the calf. 
the one that Aaron made. Just to be clear. They made a calf, the one that Aaron made. You see, God punishes sin. Sin rises up. Judgment comes down. That's crystal clear here in Exodus 32. Sin is exceedingly sinful. The people have exchanged, as Paul says in Romans 1, the glory of God for a lie. And they've chosen to serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They've broken the terms of their covenant relationship with God and they now stand condemned before God. The judgment that has already come upon them and as we'll learn as we go into next week and the weeks to come and if you know the life of the people of Israel, this judgment continues to come. It's deserved and it's just. God is just because sin must be punished. It's deserved because they're sinners. But if that's all we were to glean from these verses, I think we would be missing the most important point of all. If, that, if we ended right now, we'd all be like, what hope do we have, right? So let's talk about the hope. Let's talk about what I would call my third and final point this morning. The point that mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's been said, and the, the quote is often attributed to Tim Keller, but it may have uh, come before him. Uh, and it goes this way, the gospel of grace in all its glory holds these two things in perfect balance. Number one, we are more sinful than we could ever dare to imagine. Second, yet in Christ, we are more forgiven than we could ever dare to hope. Did you catch that? more sinful than we could ever dare to imagine. Yet in Christ, we are more forgiven than we could ever dare to hope. This is true because of the wonderful intercessory work of Jesus Christ, right? An intercessory work that is prefigured in the work of Moses here in chapter 32. We get a glimpse of the work of Christ here in chapter 32. We're going to look at two passages to see that. First, let's look at verses 11 through 14. And then we'll look at verses 30 through 32. For context, 11 through 14, Moses is still up on the mountain. He hasn't come down yet. Okay, he's still up there. This is after he hears uh, the Lord say, these people are doing this. I'm gonna punish them. I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. Okay, Moses implores the Lord in verse 11, his God, and he said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now turn over to verses 30 through 32. This is after Moses confronts Aaron. The people have drank the gold powdered water. People have been killed by the sword. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, 
But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. It's beautiful. Verses 11 through 14, Moses prays. He intercedes for the people of Israel. He stands in the gap between the Lord and Israel, and he pleads three things here. You may have caught them. He pleads with the Lord to remember his power and his glory, the same uh, power and glory that had both called this people and delivered them. He also pleads with the Lord to remember why he has called and delivered them. Do you remember that refrain throughout the early chapters? Why was God doing this to Egypt? So that they would know that he alone is God. He's the only God. And so if God just brought them out to kill them and start over, wouldn't that just make a mockery of God? So he's appealing to truth. And lastly, Moses pleads with God to act on behalf of his covenant promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a way to pray. Lean into God's power for his people. Lean into God's promises for his people. Lean into his faithfulness to his people. Well, I want you to see that Moses doesn't seek to justify. He doesn't seek to excuse the sinful behavior of the people. Instead, he just pleads for mercy. I mean, it's kind of like when your big brother gets you in a, in a hold and you can't get loose. You can make all kinds of excuses why he's able to do it, or you can just tap out. I mean, you can just say mercy, and then you can make excuses, right? Because you'll continue to be you. But the idea here is just, it's just mercy, God. Give mercy to them. Then, and we saw there in 30 through 32, and I know this is just part of the story. The story of intercession is gonna continue next week, and so we'll definitely talk about that next week. But I want you to see at least the step that Moses goes. He goes one step further. He asks the Lord to forgive them, to forgive their sin. And God, if you won't, notice what he does. Moses says, take my life in their place. Let me stand there for them. He offers himself in place of Israel. I mean, this, he's been rejected by them, right? Who's that bum up there? Who's this guy? And yet he's, I'll take their place. God, of course, did not require this of Moses. Moses had many descriptions in his, uh, many things in his job description, right? This wasn't one of them. Because it was a task that Moses couldn't fulfill. Sin does demand judgment. That's what sin deserves. And though Moses is shown in this account as more righteous than the Israelites here in this narrative, what is Moses? He's still a sinner, right? Moses stands under the same sentence, ultimately, that they do. He's under judgment. It's a beautiful picture, but Moses is not the mediator that Israel truly needs. It's not that he's not the droid they're looking for, right? He's not the mediator they're looking for. And this is the good news. This is where hope dawns on the horizon because God will one day, in this narrative, he has sent a better Moses, the true mediator, one who would stand in the gap and truly intercede for Israel. This mediator, we know him as Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, the sinless son of God. He would most certainly be able to take up this responsibility. Despised and rejected, he would still give his life for his people. 
He would take upon himself their sin on the cross and his blood would plead for mercy. And it would plead based on God's power, God's glory, God's covenant faithfulness to all his promises. The just punishment for sin that sinners deserved would be poured out upon Jesus so that they could receive that which they do not deserve. For think about this. If justice is getting what we do deserve, then what do we call getting what we don't? Mercy. Mercy. Yes, sin rises up and judgment comes down. But for those of us, those of you who are here this morning who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, mercy triumphs over that judgment. James tells us that in James 2. Mercy triumphs over that judgment through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And we get merciful forgiveness instead. I want you to hear me. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can secure forgiveness for our sins. That's why we have to put our faith and trust in him and him alone to save us. If we don't, if we don't believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation, what will happen? It won't be Jesus who suffered in our place. It will be us who suffer in our place. We die apart from Christ. We suffer the eternal punishment for our sin in hell. So yes, sin is exceedingly sinful, but mercy is exceedingly merciful. We are indeed more sinful than we could ever dare to imagine, but we are, we are more like the Israelites than we would like to admit. But in Christ, you are more forgiven than you ever dared to hope. And in all of our struggles with sin, and don't tell me you don't struggle with sin. I know I do. I know that you do. There are struggles that continue day after day after day. As long as we struggle, as long as we're in these bodies and all of these struggles with sin. What I love about 1 Corinthians 10 is that good news. We have a ready escape we have a ready escape from the shame and guilt and judgment that comes with them. We're not building walls that can't be torn down because Christ Jesus tore the wall down. What does he say? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10? God is faithful. He's not gonna let you be tempted beyond your ability. God will give you more than you can handle. But he won't give you temptation that he won't also provide you a way out. That's what this verse is about. He won't tempt you. You won't be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide you the way of escape. Christian, Christian, he's done that. He's done it in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our way of escape. So my prayer for you is that you find the grace and strength that you need to take that escape to cling to Christ and to cling to his promises. And look, I know that's hard to do. I know it's hard to do. And here's my comfort. Austin and the team sung about it just maybe 30 minutes ago, hopefully. How can I cling to him when I'm so weak and frail and sin and temptation are so overwhelming? What's well, my hope? I don't have to reach very far because he's already clinging to me. He's already holding on to you. So cling to Christ. No matter how frail your grip may be, 
his grip upon you will never loosen. Amen and amen.